Hello everybody and welcome into episode number 288 of the Bible 2021 podcast. We are reading the first chapter of the Gospel of John today and our focus is on, is Jesus really God? Was Jesus created by God? When did Jesus begin? Where was Jesus born? Was the Bible written to convince people that Jesus was God? Well, every day we get into God's Word and we seek to ask questions of the Word so that we can understand the Word and obey it and follow it. Our goal is to encourage you in daily Bible reading, thinking, understanding, and obeying. Our website is Bible2021.com. That's Bible2021.com. Do us a favor and tell a friend or neighbor about the show or share an episode on social media. Okay, as you hear the alarm siren going, I have to let you know that this alert is because (laughs) this is going to be a bit of a longer than normal podcast. I just got a little bit carried away in writing this episode. I'm not sure if I should apologize here or what, but uh, we usually shoot for around 10 minutes and Sometimes, like today, we fall short of that goal by going way over it. Now, that sentence itself was an homage of sorts to our guy, John the Baptist, who says in John 1, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me, which is a bit of a confusing line until you understand that Jesus is eternal, even though John was born on earth first. Well, buckle in. In my last read-through of the Gospel of John, I noticed something interesting that I've never actually heard anybody talk about, but I guarantee you I'm not the first one to notice it or even write about it. And I believe it is a significant point in favor of the Bible being genuine history and not an attempt to mislead, nor the results of a legend grown out of a hand. Let me briefly explain. It's what I actually wrote when I first started this, but I need to say at the end of it, I had to come back in and put an editor's note because I didn't briefly explain this at all. So let me say, let me ramble for a moment. I think this is important. Among those who don't believe what the Bible says about Jesus, most would at least acknowledge that the New Testament documents the rise of the Christian church based on the teachings of a Jewish man named Jesus. I recognize that there are a very few scholars and a few skeptics who don't believe Jesus existed at all, but the number of people who hold to that view is really quite small and seems to be in the realm of uh, the number of people who denied the moon landing or something like that. It's unwarranted skepticism. So most critical scholars, I'm talking about people who are scholars of religion, scholars of the Bible, but actually who don't believe in the resurrection or anything like that, most critical scholars would acknowledge the existence of Jesus and that the Bible records some actual history. They would, of course, differ on the more supernatural and spectacular claims of the Bible. And But most critical scholars seem to believe that either the New Testament represents an embellishment of the real facts of the historical Jesus' life, or it represents a fraud of some sort committed by the writers of the New Testament, or more likely some combination of both. Expressed another way, the majority of critical scholars who don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead or the other supernatural claims of the Bible must therefore conclude that the Bible is incorrect in all that it affirms and very likely fraudulent in at least some ways. For instance, the Gospels are not written by eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection or the 
miracles recorded in the book of Acts by Luke either didn't really happen or they weren't really recorded by first century eyewitness Luke, a companion of Paul, but maybe somebody writing much later. Somehow, some way, there must be fraud, according to the critical scholars, because the Bible claims the resurrection of Jesus happened and the dead rose and Jesus walked on water and those sorts of things. And uh, critical scholars say, no, those things did not happen. They think the Bible is incorrect, usually fraudulently incorrect. And that means that uh, the fact that they think the Bible is incorrect about the major things it affirms means that most critical scholars would say the Bible is somehow, some way fraudulent, and they would likely think it to be intentionally fraudulent, at least based on 21st century historical standards. For instance, ancients may not have considered what we call pseudo-epigraphic works to be deception, but current historians do. And by a pseudo-epigraphic work, that means uh, a book that was uh, supposedly written by somebody, but was actually written by somebody else. For instance, if I wrote a biography and uh, if I wrote a book and called it the biography of George Washington by George Washington, but in fact I was the one that wrote it, that would be a pseudo-epigraphic work. If I was pretending to be George Washington, and many many critical scholars believe that certain parts of the Bible are pseudo-epigraphic. Uh, They purport to be written by the first century disciples of Jesus, but maybe they were written later. Now, I don't believe that. I'm just telling you what the critical scholars, the critics of the Bible say. The trouble with this is that the Bible doesn't have many signs of fraud at all. For instance, the supposed writers of the letters of the Bible and the Gospels and the histories usually come off as quite silly in some places, so that the only real and ultimate hero, and person to look up to is Jesus. Well, why do you do that if you're committing a fraud? Wouldn't you want to make yourself look good as well? Or, as we've discussed before, why have women as the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus in literally all of the Gospels if you're trying to defraud and fool a culture who doesn't value the testimony of women? Or in the case of today's passage, getting more to the point after that long ramble, why does John not include a birth narrative of Jesus showing us that he was born in Bethlehem. Well, he could have done that done that because almost every scholar considers the Gospel of John to have been written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So certainly John would be aware of those Gospels. Why didn't he include that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? This is going to become an important question in a moment. Consider this little exchange in our chapter today, John 1, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Well, what's the big deal with that passage? Well, for whatever reason, Nazareth was obviously looked looked down on in Jesus' day. And most of the Bible scholars uh, of the time, of the first century, they would have known that the Messiah or the Christ would not come out of Nazareth, but Bethlehem. Now, this explains Nathaniel's remark. But you know who does not explain Nathaniel's remark at all? John. 
the author of the gospel. Think about it. If the gospel of John was an intentional fabrication, fraudulent in some ways, designed, you know, to mislead people about who Jesus was and somehow convince him, the people reading it, that he wasn't merely a man, but was the Messiah, why wouldn't John have inserted a little bit of extra dialogue in this scene where instead of Philip saying something like, come and see to Nathaniel, uh, he says something like, Oh, yeah, well, he lives in Nazareth now, but as we all know, he was born in Bethlehem. Except, John doesn't do that. And this isn't the only time in John's gospel that this particular issue comes up. There's an even better place later on for John to tell his readers that Jesus the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. And we get to that in John chapter 7, verse 40, which says, Some of the crowd heard these words of Jesus and said, This truly is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. But some said, surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So the crowd was divided because of him. Hello, John? Wouldn't this be a great place to tell us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? And yet, nothing. John gives us nary a word about Jesus' true birthplace. He just lets the crowd's misconceptions about Jesus lay there with no corrections whatsoever. And wait, we're not done yet because the end of the chapter has yet another opportunity for, if you're a critical scholar, the supposedly fraudulent author of John's Gospel to jump in and make sure we know about Jesus' birth city and This is actually one of my favorite stories in scripture, even though it's really short. You kind of got to read between the lines what exactly happened here. But in in John 7, the chief priests and the Pharisees are like fed up with Jesus. So they send some soldiers to arrest him and the soldiers go to arrest Jesus. But first they're like, hey, let's listen to this guy for a few minutes. And when they do, they're totally spellbound and transformed by what he's saying. They're saying, and there's just no way they're going to arrest him And John tells us about the follow-up after that, verse 45. Then the servants came back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? And the servants answered, No man ever spoke like this. Then the Pharisees responded to them, Are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, which doesn't even know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them, said to them, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied. Investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, look, I can hear their frustration in their voices and I totally love it. I mean, they're getting in a dispute with Nicodemus and the soldiers absolutely refuse to arrest Jesus. But, you know, that's not the point. The point is the last thing they say. Uh, so arrogantly, considering what they said earlier about how the crowd is accursed because they're ignorant, they say no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, interestingly, these guys are essentially wrong on three different points of what they said here. Number one, there's not a scripture, at least in the Old Testament, that says no prophet will arise from Galilee. This is likely just a form of first century bigotry in the form of city bias. These people from mostly Jerusalem, considering the people from the surrounding countryside as bumpkins or rubes and outsiders. So they're wrong in that. Number two, there was a prophet from Galilee, Jonah, son of Amittai. You know, the guy with the fish and Nineveh and all that. 
Yep, he was from Galilee, guys. You forget about him. He's a pretty big prophet. And finally, number three, Jesus was not from Galilee. As we all know, he was from Bethlehem. And again, this would have been yet another perfect time, if John was trying to mislead people, for him to tell us that Jesus was from Bethlehem, thus proving that Jesus was the Messiah, except not only does John not tell us here that Jesus was from Bethlehem, he never tells us that Jesus was from Bethlehem, which is interesting. And you say, well, other parts of the Bible do. And yes, of course they do. But remember, the Gospel of John was not written to be part of this book called the Bible. The Gospel of John was written as its own book at a separate time by a different guy writing at a different period of history in a different location from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So he's not thinking, oh, everybody will have read these others. He's writing his own standalone book, and he doesn't include that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, which at least to me tells us that John is not trying to write a book that is propping up some pet theory or some sort of fraudulent thing. John is not trying to defraud us. He's just telling us what happened. He's not even trying to make a very clear case that Jesus is the Messiah, because if he was, he missed an opportunity to do so there. Well, anyway, that's some apologetics thinking for you. Does it disprove that, uh, or does it prove that Jesus rose from the dead? I, I don't guess it does. Uh, but I do think it really weighs in heavily on the thinking that John is trying to deceive us. It seems to be he's trying to do anything but that. Um, so some apologetics thinking for you. And I actually hope you're more interested in it than my family was tonight at Bible time when I endeavored to explain it all to them. But you know what? Don't worry. I want to close out with some wonderful words from Charles Spurgeon, which will be much better than what you did just hear, and on a much, much greater truth than what we just talked about, the truth that Jesus was truly a person, truly a man, and truly the Son of God. Here's Spurgeon. He says, John is especially careful that we should know that Jesus is a real and true person, and therefore he tells us that the divine word of whose fullness, fullness we have received is most assuredly God. No language can be more distinct and explicit than that which John uses concerning Jesus. He ascribes to him the eternity which belongs alone to God. In the beginning was the word. He, beyond all question, claims divinity for him. The word was God. John ascribes to Jesus creative power. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He ascribes to him self-existence, which is the essential characteristic of God. In him was life. He claims for him a nature peculiar to God. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And he says that the word is the true light, which lights every man that comes into the world. No writer could be more definite in the expressions he uses. And beyond all question, John sets for the true and proper deity of the Blessed One, whom we all must receive if we would obtain eternal salvation, Jesus. Yet, John does not fail to demonstrate that our Lord was also a man. He says the Word was made flesh, not merely assumed manhood, but was made flesh, made not merely man as to his nobler part, his soul, but man as to his flesh too, his lower element. Our Lord was not a phantom or a ghost, but one who, as John declares in his first epistle, could be seen and heard and touched and handled. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
he lived with the sons of men. A carpenter shed his lowly refuge in the caves and mountains of the earth, his midnight resort in his life. He dwelt among sinners and sufferers, among mortals and mourners, himself completing his citizenship among us by becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Thus, while he is so august a person that heaven and earth tremble at the majesty of his presence, yet he is so humble a person that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Amen. Well, let's read our passage. It is John chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then? They asked him, Are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then? They asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked John the Baptist, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. And he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, The one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. 
he first found his own brother Simon and told him, We've found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, amen. Let us, dear friends, close with our Bible memory passage for the month of October, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Amen. Well, good day to you and Godspeed.